Okay, I have we beat OpenAI to death? Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Grumpy Old Ben's podcast for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023 from America's left coast where Darren isn't here and we're going to let the party begin. I'm your host, Ryan Bemrose. And from the other coast in New York City, I'm, uh, fuck, can I do that again? You you can't trust me. The other coast. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And from the other coast, where it hasn't snowed yet in New York City since the beginning of the winter, I'm Progo. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, Darren is uh, currently selfishly putting his medical issues ahead of the health of our show. And so I decided to go ahead. I, w- I was thinking, hey, screw you, I'll do a show by myself. I can, I can present the arguments and then react to them like, oh my God, you're crazy. And then I got a volunteer. Technically, I got two and, volunteers. But well, I figured I had to volunteer because I've got to keep Angry Tech News on track. I because did. Thank you, you. you were talking about you were talking about moving Angry Tech News to Tuesday and doing live recordings and all that. And I was thinking, wait, if if he has to do a show on Tuesday and a show on Wednesday, Ryan's just going to say, you know what, fuck it, I'm not doing Angry Tech News. I, I'll just use this material for the, the Wednesday show. Well, that and is then in, Angry Tech News would again be off the rails. That is, in fact, what happened most of the last several weeks. But believe it or not, I went live yesterday, at this time, in fact, Yes, with an Angry Tech and News. I, I heard. It was, it was the I, longest. I did listen to it later last night. It was the longest Angry Tech News I've ever done. Uh, it was 37 minutes, which doesn't seem like a lot, especially when every Wednesday we do a Grumpy Old Ben's. That's two hours, but that 37 minutes is talking straight through without a breath. Yep. (laughs) It it was exhausting. Well, it was a job well done. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So how, how are things in, in the real it world? You know, I'm, I'm just a poser these days. All I do is podcast and complain about it, but I haven't been working in it in a little while. How, how are things? Well, um, I can't go into all the details about it, but I am very happy to tell you that I am well, currently broadcasting from, sorry? You can't go into the real details, but you can make some up. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty details of like how this happened and what is compliant and what's not, but uh, I'm broadcasting to you from my work PC because my personal desktop is kind of a mess, and uh, I'm running Linux on my uh, com- company laptop. And uh, that makes me very happy. Yes. And you're on a, a gaming headset, which is why this show for the, the people who completely get off on the amazing audio quality of Grumpy Old Ben's, you might want to just skip this episode because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm getting reports from the troll room already that Ryan sounds crunchy. And I don't even know the why that is other than uh, Darren did not loan me his Motu or his amazing audio channel or pipeline for this. So I kind of had to make up my own. Uh, and the first thing that I got to deal with was the 
fantastic software called Voice Meter, which allows you to do software audio routing because my Motu, uh, it, it, the idea of the Motu M4 for audio routing is that they, they did, they have a loopback mix channel, which is, uh, I guess, great for streaming, but does not have all of the requirements. I, I could try to make it work with that, but what would happen is you would get your voice bounced back at you. And yeah. uh, if, if I tried to make the stream right. And, and if you get that with a hundred millisecond delay over the internet, that really sucks. Well, it's it, if, if you're used to it, like you've been broadcasting forever, some people do, then you're like, oh yeah, just ignore that mentally. But that's, it would drive me nuts and I suspect it would drive you nuts. So we're not doing that. So instead I started using voice meter in order to do the routing and it is successfully routing. I cannot tell you for sure. It might be adding crackle to or crunchy to my audio, but uh, I will tell you the thing that it, it, this is by the way, fantastic marketing move for the people who wrote this. I have not launched the software in a year. So because I just don't do this very often. So I don't. And, and I got to ask you, did it ask, did it tell you that there was an update available? It, it, I don't know if it did, it did not pop up and be really annoying. So uh, it's, it's the software from a year ago. It probably has vulnerabilities. You are probably uploading viruses to me over clean feed right now because I did not update the software, but obviously if I don't use it very often, I don't have the registered version of voice meter. And it, if I use this every day, I sure as hell would be sending them money. It's just, it's not something, it's something that I use when I need to patch in once a year. I'm not going to pay a subscription for software for something I use once a year. Fine. So here's their method of trying to convince me to register. I launch the software and it pops up a dialogue that says something to the effect of you're using the unregistered version. Here's all the things you can get if you get the registered version and then a counter over the dismiss button oh yeah, that is counting down from five minutes. I am so glad I tried to start the sound check at, at 20 after because <laughs> I'm like, okay, five minutes, fine. Minimize you. I'll go do some more notes or something. It, it, this is how they want you to use your, you, this is how they want you to register the product is they say, Oh, sorry, you can't use it when you want to, but five minutes later, we might deign to allow you. And now I'm looking at a, a note at the top of the software that says unregistered version, next invitation to donate in five hours. So if we keep going for five more <laughs> hours, it's going to cut out my entire audio pipeline for five more minutes. But I don't think we're I, talking I think about that. that I, I think that is a valid way to handle, like, you know, giving out a freebie and say, if if you want to support the software and, and and get what you get the functionality you want, give us money. I think that's a valid way to do that. I think it's certainly a valid way, but it's annoying as shit, and that's what I'm complaining about. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. It could be worse. It could be we were in the middle of a conversation, then it would and, uh, just disconnect and install an update without even getting your consent. And, and if I started this four and a half hours ago, then it would cut in and disconnect yeah. us. <laughs> Well, that's okay because my my, uh, my docking station that was provided by my company is is a USB four and Thunderbolt. Oh, and uh, every day and a half or so, the entire everything connected to the docking station just goes offline and then comes back on like a second later. And uh, so my Ethernet might cut out, and I don't think that's going to bother CleanFeed. I just it, I'll reappear. Okay, but I did not I did not plug my headset into the docking station. I 
plugged it into the board directly. Okay. So, so I hope that's okay. So what you're saying is that you might disappear mid sentence and then I'm going to have to do the classic Darren line of, Oh, he went to the bathroom. Yep. Is that <laughs> which in, in Darren's uh, defense, it, half the time, that's what I'm doing, but yeah, that, uh, that, that nagging, like, Hey, you haven't paid and, and we're going to just sit here and wait while you think about the fact that you haven't paid. I think WinZip used to do that, and I think um, well, I, Sublime I Text. Up, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Sublime Text. I I never used that one, did yeah. it? I I use Notepad Plus uh, Plus, which so. which uh, yeah. by the way, I did pay for Notepad Plus Plus because I use it every single day. But if I recall, it wasn't naggy. It was just, hey, you know, guys, uh, if if you got value out of this product, can you send some back? And, you know, I came up through the BBS days back when, when before Ethernet, before everybody had an always on connection and, and you, when you wanted to connect, you had to dial a phone number and you got the, the haze compatible modem, basically the, the sound that. And then somebody had to go and put that into yeah. the show song for. And, yeah. And yeah. yeah. About that. Go they, ahead. I, I, okay. Total side note. Um, when I'm the one connected on the other end of clean feed, I think the grumpy old Ben's theme is a little too long. I'm usually getting up, getting more coffee, petting the cats, et cetera, until the damn thing ends. It seems even longer when I'm the one playing it. But anyway, so in, <laughs> in the BBS era, we certainly had software. You had to connect to something and then initiate the download and then sit there and wait. So you always had to have something going on. But, and, and we were also on single threaded computers, of course. So whatever you were doing, you couldn't just alt tab. But oh yeah, I remember that. The software that I downloaded back then, there were effectively a couple types of software that proliferated amongst the BBS. There was shareware, which was yep. for better or worse was the value for value model. It was, "Hey, do you like this software? Please send us some money." I mean, they hadn't refined it the way that Adam and John have, but and then the other was uh one that we referred to as crippleware, and that's what voice meter is. Mhm. <laughs> I did not. Oh, the other one was all right. Uh, Apogee called this shareware. The other model that the model that Apogee uh, games uh, they they created and everybody loved it was we'll give away the first episode of a series. You get the game, the first episode, and you can play that as much as you want. Please share it. Put it on all the BBSs, and then if you want the rest of the story, you got to pay us, and we'll send it to you directly. I, I can see the argument that that's crippleware, but honestly, no, no. What that is, that's a demo. And yeah. I totally support that. But that's, the, the demo is like a whole self-contained yeah. chapter. It's like a real game. Like the, the demo is you're you're not going to get all the way to the end of the plot. You're going to reach the end of the game and have some hanging threads and stuff that you and basically what they want is they want you to reach the end of what you can play and want more. And and yeah. I, that's great. I and then usually what you did after that was you went and pirated a full game if you knew where to get one. But yeah, exactly. I, I, I totally support that too. Like, give me, give me some basic functionality. Like here's, here's another software that I don't use, but once every year and a half, because Darren is always the one who initiates the clean feed link. So I started clean feed this time. And as I'm sitting here trying to route my audio, what I realized is that clean feed does not support choosing an output device. It only forces an output to go to your default system device. So part of my bending over backwards and screwing with voice meter was I had to change my system audio default output device to be 
the one that's coming from CleanFeed and then route accordingly, which means, by the way, if if I get any random system sounds, which I hope I've muted all of them, then what it's going to come out is it's going to come to my ears. It's going to go out to the stream. You won't hear it because it's going to be treated like <laughs> it's your voice. I, I think I have that problem with Zoom on the Linux desktop with Brave Browser. Like Zoom, you open up Zoom, you join a meeting and it says like, which audio device do you want to use? But like, I think it's my, my uh, audio input, the microphone channel. I can choose all of them. I can choose one of them individually. I can keep on ch changing it, like cycle through all of them. And it'll never use anything except my default audio input. <laughs> so like I have to go but and set my default and then restart Zoom. And like I just have to make a note that I need to do that before I start it. Yeah. But it's like, why are you giving me the choice if it doesn't have any effect so, on the call? So it has a placebo setting. Yeah. <laughs> and and of course, after you're done with that, you get to go back and go, why the hell can't I hear this music I'm playing or whatever it's doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently CleanFeed has decided that the ability to choose what output device to route from CleanFeed is a premium feature. They want me to pay for the ability to send to an alternate audio device. So, you know, bravo CleanFeed for taking the most basic functionality and putting it behind a paywall. That's totally going to get me to want to pay a subscription. <laughs> yeah. Well, just make sure you set the default device correctly before you start it. Okay. If you're... If you got multiple programs running, then that's going to be a problem because like yeah, and I always every have multiple program programs has a different running. audio device. What, yeah. One of the benefits of taking control of my own Windows update schedule is that I tend to have an uptime measured in months. <laughs> I've always got stuff running. So anyway, I think you mentioned you, yes. one. I got to say something about Notepad++. I think I've said it on the show before, but I, I got to say it like people in my company will like we have shared um you know application servers and like there's one default login it's a, a windows desktop you go in there and everybody's got notepad plus plus installed and i used to install notepad plus plus on my own project virtual machines and i absolutely hate it and i, I <laughs> like I'll, I'll sometimes even delete it on a shared server um you take any any web server running Windows that's got Notepad++ installed or take any project VM that's been asleep for six months, you you say, oh, I've got to do something in this machine and you boot it up and you, just, you, you need to edit a text file. The first thing you get, like for like five years, I think they may have changed it, but it's like, hey, there's a there's an update for Notepad++ available. And then oh, you, you, it's turned into but an you go and turn rant. that off. I should have seen that coming. You turn that off and then you restart Notepad++ and it's like, oh, hey, there's updates for plugins. There's like, there's an update Notepad++ setting that's in one place in options. And there's, there's, there's a, uh, do you want to check for updates for the plugins? That's in another place. And you can't search the options screen. And the options screen organization is like... Um, Open source. It, it's like, it, it's like Mozilla, um, Mozilla 3.0. Like they... At one point, uh, Firefox project had to like just declare bankruptcy, and they like deleted the option screen and created it from scratch. I, my favorite, it was a mess. And my no favorite option plus screen plus in like Firefox that. is about config, so I yeah, which, which is uh, about anyway, the UI like, you can expect out of a lot of open source projects. Please don't put the check for updates settings in completely different places, so I have to go and hunt them all down. But that is the worst for a VM or a web server that you haven't logged into for six months. 
because every time you open it up, and then if you're like doing three or four different servers at the same time, they've all got Notepad++ installed. It's like every time you log in. Okay, and and I'm done with that rant. That was kind of a crappy rant. Oh, come on. You, you Go full Bemrose, especially when going off about automatic updates. You, to be honest, <laughs> let's be honest. You don't need an automatic update rant from me right now. You get one. If you listen to Grumpy Old Ben's, you get one every single show, whether you want it or not. But I'm not. I'm, I'm not surprised you still have your Xbox. I it, it still exists. I haven't uh, I haven't sold it and I haven't thrown it off of the balcony into the road. So uh, I don't really turn it on anymore. Uh, believe it or not, I f- followed through on my threat. I let my Xbox Live subscription uh, expire and I just don't boot it anymore. I, I took it out of the like it is no longer occupying one of the HDMI ports behind my TV. But it's still Servo exists. says Servo says about Notepad++, I just need a one-liner to edit the config file for me. And yeah, that is a valid solution, but also choose software that doesn't do that shit. Zing! Oh, not that kind of one-liner. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I so, feel like... Uh, we, we got news stories? Like, yeah, we, we I, 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 slept, enough. I slept through my show prep time today. I promised I was going to bring a bunch of stories, and since I've been sick, I just I slept for like... I, I I went to one meeting in this morning at work, and then I just fell asleep for two hours. So I got nothing. I, I opened a bunch of browser tabs. I'm not even sure what's that, in them. That, believe it or not, sounds like a fantastic use of meeting time. If if I recall my time in in corporate America, it's not like you get anything else out of meeting. Might as well get some sleep. Yeah, I I, I was <laughs> sorry. You you were going to say I, something? No, I went to the meeting and then I went to sleep. Oh, go good. ahead. Oh, so I I did I have been kind of trying to pass time with just generic rants about the technology we're using, hoping that maybe we would get our, our third host, Sir Gene, but I feel like uh, we're not getting this. So let's go ahead and drop into, uh, you know, to be honest, I expected a lot of conversation, so I didn't bring too many stories, but the one that I brought had lots of links because it had lots of facets. And I kind of wanted Gene's opinion on this one. Uh, have you heard of a thing called chat GPT? Yes, I have. And in fact, I'm doing a presentation about it next month. But the uh, I'm doing a presentation next month, and that means that I haven't even thought about starting the research yet. So anything I say is just going to be a, uh, complete bullshit off the cuff. Excellent, because that's the kind of show material we expect here. So uh, the the first article that I came across was one where uh, the, the creator of Gmail is quoted uh, – he, he was at some, I don't know, conference or something and happened to mention, he said, chat GPT will destroy Google within two years. Now, if you are a, a tech journalist, that's the kind of thing that you makes you get erect because, oh my gosh, you know, sensationalist headline, this guy thinks he's going to destroy Google. Uh, I doubt that's actually the case and I doubt that's what he meant, but that was the headline. Uh, but what Is I, Google actually like really freaked out about it? Well, there, or is it just like one person said something? I, I, according to the reporting, the one person who said something was Sundar Pichai uh, and mm-hmm. said something to the effect of it's it's red alert that we need to respond to this. Uh, oh, yeah. And they, they brought in they brought in the founders like we need to consult with you. We don't know what to do. They, they, they had a huge meeting with them about what do we do with these chat AIs? Yeah, and 
you know, I'm, I hear this and I'm like, well, is it bad or is it not? But then there's somebody whose future predictions I tend to really listen to, even if I don't always agree with them, which is Adam Curry on the No Agenda show, uh, who is mm-hmm. right alongside the doomsayers saying this is going to destroy search. And I, I wanted to explore that, like how and why and what are the chances? So I kind of feel like spam has already destroyed search, but... I feel like Google yeah. has already destroyed search, at least for Google, but it's a baby. Uh, so here's, here's the, the, the money quote from the article, uh, the creator of Gmail, which I didn't even write down his name because I don't really care is he envisions that, uh, in the future within two years, it says that the browser bar is going to be replaced by an AI prompt that auto completes your thought with the right answer as you type it and people will never go to the search landing page, the, the big page of ads. I mean, links that Google displays and that is Google's bread and butter. And that is why Google are, is worried is that if people can get the answers they need without landing on the ad page, I mean, links page, then, but, 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 but Google controls all of the browser engines that are viable. (laughs) <laughs> Google owns the the Chromium engine and they can pretty much dictate what anybody does with the Chromium engine. You know that, you know that, and I know that. And well, they also own Firefox because I, if you look in the last 10 years or so, 100% of Firefox's uh, operating capital is coming from Google. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the other option is what are they going to charge people to use it? Yeah. I, so, it's, it's, I'm not concerned about the address bar. Like, it, I mean, if I was Google, I wouldn't be concerned about the address bar. They'll, the, the browser makers will program the address bar how Google says they will program it. I think you're overstating Google's control over that too. Uh, here, here, an analogous argument uh, regards the Manifest V3. Have you been following that? Is it? That analogous, what, what word did you I, just use? I, I used the word analogous because I couldn't come up with the right one. Let's ignore the fact that I can't speak. And okay. are, are you familiar with Manifest V3? Uh, yes, and I'm familiar with the backlash against it. And, yes. And if Google yeah, I, is, I think that that's, that's like a, if they step too far, then all the people that build the browsers for the people are just going to, they're going to reprogram it however yeah, they want. Yeah, go I ahead. think... I think you overstate Google's control over the browser market because Chromium, at least at this point, is sufficiently forkable that the moment Google does something that people genuinely hate in mass, they suddenly stop controlling the, the browser. Uh, now, I don't know if, if putting AI in the search bar or the, the browser bar, the address bar, they, they kind of make it all one bar. I don't know what to call it. I don't know if putting AI in that counts as that, but I think completely disabling, in, especially in a world where ads have genuinely become malware. We even have the U.S. government warning us that you should probably be running ad blockers because ads are installing malware on systems and ads being delivered by Google on the Google search page are now trying to deliver malware. Google trying to go against this and telling people, Oh, we're we're just going to put something into the browser that we claim makes it safer, but really the main reason we're doing it is so we can destroy all ad blockers. 
They haven't done that yet. They have not pulled the trigger. That was originally scheduled for the end of 2021 when Manifest V3 was going to be rolled out by default on all Chrome everywhere. And the pushback has been so much that it hasn't come out. They keep trying to come up with ways of of hoping people will accept the the destruction of all ad blockers. And I don't see that happening. And yeah, I guess that's you my, make a good point there. I guess that's my example of why. Uh, yes, Google controls as long as they push very lightly in ways that people are willing to go already. But if they come out and start pushing hard at things that people don't want, and you know, at this point, is there evidence so the that people want? So the perceived threat right now is that people is that browser makers and plugin makers are going to make a system where the functionality of the address bar becomes: I start typing in a prompt, and then I get a synthesized response to that prompt that isn't even search results and it might link to some search results but you never get as you said you never get the 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 search engine homepage yeah. uh result screen because google for 25 years now uh i think i first heard of the google search engine in 1998 ish uh hmm. google for the last 25 years has been you type in some terms and we churn on the algo and display you a page of links and their business model is some of those links are ads and we don't always tell you which ones are. And therefore you're going to see our ads because you're dropping into the landing page. So the search I, I, model, that page, I haven't used it habitually for like 12 years, but when I, I do look Google at it occasionally, for... it kind of looks like garbage. It, it does. It really and does. I thought when I was hearing the the chat GPT story, I was thinking that the threat to Google, the threat was you have these alternatives. You've got DuckDuckGo, you've got Brave, Brave Search, you've got Search, uh, Search, Search. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'd say Search. Yeah. Um, and I I thought the threat was somebody is going to create a new search result homepage that is going to be composed uh, like a, a server. You don't install anything in your browser. You just go to this page and you add it to your address bar and stuff. And instead of going to Google search, you go to chat GPT search and its first response is an essay followed by, uh, you know, links to websites or whatever. I thought that was the threat. And maybe that's a credible threat. I don't know much about it, but I, when I see people in, on YouTube playing with chat GPT, like, you know, I, I got an invite and I went and played with it. I'm not sure what the process is, but they, they show it synthesizing text and it's like yeah it, it, it's synthesizing text it is not answering questions and it doesn't have a clue what it's talking about the so the reason the thing but i I, see, I don't th- i i wouldn't say it couldn't get better the, the thing that i see happening here or at least the 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 30 second pitch that makes silicon valley vcs wet themselves is that this chat GPT, which right now can build you a long ass essay nobody wants to read based on a very short prompt, will somehow be morphed. And, and I don't think this is a huge leap into uh, kind of what I described earlier. Uh, you type what you want to know, however you phrase that. It could be a question. It could be a series of terms. And it just magically reads your mind and gives you the right answer which you've spent yeah. enough time in computer science, you know that that is an incredibly hard problem. And I don't know. And if they, they kind of, 
Sorry. They kind of tried to do that with with the the different search portals like ten years ago or fifteen yeah. years ago. I, I worked um, they, on like, Bing ten years you, ago when we were doing that. Yeah, Bing did this, and Google Search did it. You'd say like, "I want the weather in uh, New York City," and it would just it would give you an info bar with "Here's the weather report for New York City," and then there'd be search results after that. Yeah, and so I guess that the new layer would be if you ask it a what is the state of things type question, it will synthesize a news story for that topic instead of linking to a bunch of news stories. So you're thinking like fake news as a service. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and that, that feeds into like what, what happens when, what happens when the, the, the snake starts eating itself? And I'm sure it already has when uh, all these companies that are just going, they have no, I, I'm, I know how these things get experimented on. I know how products get developed um, there's like, do it fast and dirty and quick and terrible the first time. And then we'll iterate. So yeah, they have, move they have no control into, so what information is being fed into these AIs, uh, is, is there's no control whatsoever. And the snake has probably already started eating its tail because they, they, they're feeding AI generated garbage news articles into this thing because it just <laughs> got picked up in a general, like, you know, drag, dragnet of stories. And uh, eventually, it's just going to be this this uh, feedback loop of AI generated based on stuff written by an AI that the AI read. I've I've never thought about that, but that prospect fascinates me. It's, it's, <laughs> it'll be fun to watch for all of us. Eventually, it'll be garbage all the way down. <laughs> and there's always going to be this small class of humans who use things like Brave Search, and they're they're always looking for the alternative because they don't trust the mainstream we're all going to be in our nice little bubble of like shit just works because we have vendors that care about us that actually cater to us instead of to ads. I'm going to be Um, in that. We're going to be in our nice little bubble. And then we're going to discover that like the mainstream people are, are using AI that's based on AI text and and nobody has any idea what's actually going on anymore. Well, we're just going to come complete our, our complete, uh, what's the term epistemological, the, the one that says how, you know, what, you know, we we have a, a divide already uh, between what people believe is the truth. And at some point, the truth that people live in is going to be so complete and so self-referential that there will be no way to acknowledge that it's not just how things are. We are already kind of getting and the root of it. <laughs> the root of it is going to be an AI feedback loop. <laughs> this is how Skynet takes over. This is. This is okay. But is that feedback loop capable of becoming self-aware? It, does it matter? You know, the funny thing, know. the thing that the, that Eliza and the Turing test has, has taught me is that in order to fool a human into believing what you've got, you don't need better AI. You just need stupider humans. And, and then, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get a sufficiently dumb human and, and a, a, a chat log from 20 years ago will fool them into thinking these are real people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, you know, the, I, I've always thought that, that the page of results is uh, kind of a, a, an interim step that Google kind of froze on because they realized how many ads they can dump on the page, but it was always an interim step on the way to what we, I mean, this is not just investors. This is what we've always really wanted out of our computer is I 
through some mechanism, this, this is, this is ultimately why I learned to program through some mechanism. I tell my computer what I want and my computer gives me what I want. That interaction right there is, has been the Holy grail of computing for 40 years. Yeah. It's been in Star Trek. Star Trek uses that trope all the time for storytelling. Like just the computer is just this assistant that knows and controls everything. And you can just say, well, you know, what about this angle of the problem? And the computer will give you it's, it, what it knows in, in, in plain language or in pictures if you need to. Um, and I remember when I was little, like before I even started watching Star Trek, I always had, had I, I learned to read and learned how to program it in, in the same year. I was like late kindergarten, early first grade, something like that. Uh, my goal was I wanted to be able to control my Commodore 64 computer. That was what got me to learn how to read so that I could learn how to program it. And then after, like, you know, playing around doing crappy basic programs, like, I don't even remember what I was doing, but just parroting stuff from books and things. But I, I had a fantasy for years of, like, just trying to, I was always turning it over in my head. How would I program a computer to do thought work for me? Yeah. Well, it's easy and, if you uh, watch that Star Trek movie. You just pick up the mouse and talk into the mouse ball. <laughs> computer. How quaint. Computer. Oh, a keyboard. What? That that scene is really funny because like he he has no idea he has no idea what the mode of interaction with this computer is, and then they say, "Oh, just try to use the keyboard," and then suddenly he speaks the computer's language. But but he's two finger typing, and uh, yeah, all of this data, the like hundreds of of megabytes worth of data and diagrams and graphics are all popping up on the screen when he's pushing about twelve keys with his two index fingers. But, you know, they weren't the only film to do that. Oh, of course. That's that's Hollywood. You know, the thing I like about that scene is that it's still relevant today in terms of of interacting with a system that you do not understand how to interact with. Yep. And and maybe that is why the the highly placed people at Google and and Adam Curry think that ChatGPT is going to destroy Google because Google has put all of their revenue, all of their advertising eggs into the one basket, which is the search landing page, which was always an interim step. It was never the end all of human interaction. It it was always a step toward getting to that place that Star Trek wants us to get to that, that Bing wanted to get to 10 years ago that says somehow I just want the computer to give me the thing that I want. And like I said, that is a, a, and and do you think, do you think Google's freakout is based on like I I I kind of get like an undercurrent of feeling from the story that like maybe Google knew it, we can assume that someone at Google if they're in the right place of power knew that this was always going to be a problem that like search hope. isn't the search isn't the the final destination of whatever that you call the Google homepage. Uh, maybe they, they knew this, but maybe they're freaking out because they weren't expecting anyone to suddenly come up with a solution in this year or, you know, come up with a, a hint of something that's going to be the solution. So it's like they were caught with their pants down, like not, not, you know, just, just masturbating off on the side, but not making any progress on anything. Well, even when you discount all of the woke people who are currently being laid off, Google has some very, very, very smart people out there. And a lot of them are working on the AI systems. I actually dislike the term AI because it's, it's just it, uh, machine learning is better. Anyway, let me get past that. Yeah. Google has a lot of people I, I, working. I, I keep using AI because 
people call it AI. Yes. And I, yeah, I agree. It's kind of a weird term, but just put the whole thing under data processing and it's a lot, yeah. it's a lot easy. It, it's a lot nicer. Well, like there are different shades of data processing and different kinds of data processing, but this is a new flavor of data processing that we're discovering what we can do with it. Our, our curse, yours and mine at least, is that we understand what's going on behind the scenes and why that is that marketing speak is such a misnomer. Uh, compared to the general public, I think I'm like half a layer above how much I understand what the what GPT is and how it works. Um, but I I, uh, I didn't study the math and I I, don't, I couldn't explain it to you. Well, ChatGPT is come is is being pushed by their managed. I, I'm not certain exactly the relationship, but by a company called OpenAI. And yeah. It would be crazy to think nobody at Google has had the idea of doing everything OpenAI is doing. Uh, OpenAI at this point is getting most of their budget by Microsoft. So you know exactly where, you know, where this big fight is. It's the Titans clashing. Microsoft is just using them as yeah. a proxy. It would be crazy. And, and to you think- know what happened the last time Microsoft and Google clashed uh, <laughs> or one of the recent times? Uh, Microsoft had their browser, which was the first version of Edge, which was not based on Chromium. And uh, Google it was, it was did not like Trident. the fact that it was it was Internet Explorer, yeah. which has a lot of baggage with it, it. Even when you call it Trident, no, wasn't wasn't there an engine after Trident? They they abandoned Trident. They created a new one for Edge, and um, I, I forget what it was called, but it wasn't Trident. It was a the, it was Edge. It, it had a code name, um, but that that went on for a couple of years. And Google decided, in their infinite wisdom, that they were going to ship bad code in the YouTube player so that YouTube would perform terribly in edge. And this went on for long enough. And Microsoft just threw in the towel and said, we admit defeat. This is the shit that happened to us 20 years ago. So we can't really complain. And we're just going to throw away the edge uh, core and then build it on top of Chromium. And that made Google happy. What what was the phrase from 25 years ago is uh, windows isn't extent. Uh, Windows is oh yeah that one. Lotus won't run. Yeah, well, YouTube pulled exactly that. Yeah, and caused Microsoft to abandon their browser engine and adopt Chromium. Uh And I, I, I'll always hate Google for that, and I'm surprised that 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 story resolved in the way that it did. I have so many reasons to always hate Google. Anyway, to but, to, um, to try to finish. So my- so now they're they're going to clash over this open AI stuff, and it's going to get dirty. To try to finish my thought, I'm certain that Google has come up with the concept of let's let, you know, they have an algo that is so complicated in Google as to be bordering on AI and they continue to give you the grid of links. And I think Google may well have already come up with this and open AI might not even be the first, but if they have what they have not figured out, which is the far, far harder problem than trying to give people the results they're looking for is how do we take the AI answering your question and fill that page with ads? We have to, you know, Google is so hamstrung as a company. They're, they're shackled. They are tied. They cannot do anything ever that would cut into revenue of that search page. And that I think is why Google is screwed, not because AI. I think Google is screwed because they have realized that they have tied their entire multi-trillion dollar company or whatever they, however they make, they have tied that all to this UI 
that was made ultimately, and it has incrementally changed, but it is a UI from 1997 that says, you want something and we're going to give you a list of, st- we're, we're going to give you the MSN homepage in response to your query. Or the Yahoo homepage or whatever. That, that's what it is. It feels like this is from, they, they need to shed that for the purpose of being able to move forward. OpenAI is forcing their hand but they can't because the hard problem is not figuring out how to get an algo that answers your question. The problem is how do we monetize that and not lose 80% of our revenue? Yeah. And, and presumably just sticking little info boxes on the left side and the right side with animations paid by advertisers. That's not going to work because it's not even the same form as the answer that you asked for. Yeah, I'm sure they've got a and whole. Pe- and people are going to ignore it. I'm sure they've got a whole so it, department worth of, of psychologists so it, it called designers. It sounds designers. like they have a business problem of how do we how do we sell the service of putting your your thing, your thoughts, your your um, your product, your brand. We're going to put your brand into the answer that is the synthesized answer that answers the question. Uh, and how do we how do we sell that? And how do we do the accounting on that? Maybe that's what the the, the freakout is about because they have no idea how that's going to look. Maybe can't can't Google just say that? Can't they just do what it, ad tech has always been doing and they they sell a bunch of promises and nobody can measure it? Uh, I think they've been doing that for too long, and they're they're not they're not a startup anymore. They're not a small Silicon Valley company that people will just reach in and start throwing at. They they. Well, among other things, they have to deal with Wall Street, not not angel investors. Angel investors are really easy to wow with with fancy pitches and and techno babble. The Wall Street people are like, show me the money. Mm-hmm. I I might be wrong about that. I'm no businessman, but I don't know. I just feel like Google is not in the same. They, they can't act like a startup and that's what's killing them. Right. And uh, the other angle of this that I, I'm not sure how well either of us understand the state of things um chat gpt as it is right now it's like a tech demo you can do you have to like invite yourself in and then you go in and wait in a queue until the system's not too busy i know you can't like download chat gpt and install it on your own system yeah Um, and please go ahead and let me just download the the training data set please mm -hmm. (laughs) let me me download the whole model i'll just put it on my hard drive in a file called well, OpenAI. OpenAI did that with their Whisper, their the Whisper um, model and program for doing automated uh, captions uh, from t- turning audio into text, and that works so well. Like Whisper is labeled as like you know this is just experimental; it's not authoritative, and you, you go play with it. And everyone took that and said, "Oh, this is great! I'm going to use this in production for everything." Yeah, podcast transcripts, uh, archive archive.org got really excited about it and how they're using it is they're just going to, everything that is automated whisper AI, uh, whisper uh, text caption generation, if it's just whisper, they're just going to label it as like, this was machine translated into text. You can search it, but, um, you know, don't use this for citations kind of thing. I mean, that, and, uh, that would and fact- archive.org is also using it for stuff that they want to be properly captioned. They're using Whisper a Whisper as the uh, the first pass, and then have a human clean it up, and that's great too. Um, so Whisper, you can download it and use it for free, but ChatGPT, you can't. Um, 
It, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, I was, uh, I, I probably, but that's okay. You were on a roll. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I'm, I'm kind of out of it and I, I almost lost what my point was, but I was going to go, I was going to say something about ChatGPT. people have played with it. I haven't, but the, the, the little bit of videos and stuff where I've, I've seen people playing with it. I wonder like a lot of these AI systems will, uh, and, and the, the image synthesis went through this phase for a while. Um, remember, uh, I, I think it was. Dolly two or Dolly number one, like one or two years ago from from OpenAI, it was like really impressive. But at the same time, the, these images coming out of Dolly, uh, the first version of Dolly, it was really impressive. But at the same time, it was like, yeah, that's just AI scribbles, and you can tell it's 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 not, you know, it's not photorealistic or it doesn't look like a real thinking person made it. And I think that's kind of like the level where ChatGPT is now, where like it can it can write an essay for you on the spot, but you, one out of two times that essay doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's more like word salad, and it'll also it it'll very happily make up facts for you. You can ask it a factual question, and it'll give you a factual answer that may or may not be true based on any evidence that is documented anywhere. And that's my thing. Uh, so it'll just. It it just makes shit up and, and it says, well, this sounds like the way that people talk about this topic. Therefore, it's a valid answer and it'll output it. Uh, so it's kind of at the parlor trick kind of stage, like like Dolly 1 was uh, a few years ago. And now the, the current image synthesis things are, are starting to – people are worrying that they're going to um, – people are worrying that they're going to replace graphic artists and stuff and that – it's only going to change the graphic artist's work. It's not going to completely replace that as a job. That that's uh, that's a crazy thought. But so the image synthesis is getting good and getting to the point where you can actually use it to design, like you know, advertising. Like you know, I need a I need a an image element that looks like this. It's this kind of a character in this situation, and then I'm going to throw a bunch of text on it and call it an ad. Um, that's going to be happening soon, and and no one's going to no one's saying that isn't. But is ChatGPT going to be production ready in a year or fifteen years or not this century? Um, what is the trajectory of it, and how much of it is it really a threat against Google's well, answer providing business? I I honestly think that the last the last mile, whatever that is, the one that changes it from. Uh, here's a toy that can create plausible sounding deep fakes to this genuinely answers your question accurately is a lot longer step than most people are willing to admit. That's a, a pretty common thing for Silicon Valley to, to drop into, Oh, well, you know, we've, we've got 90% of the problem and we don't acknowledge the other 500%. So we're just going to say, we're almost there. Give us more money, you know, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you and, know, and look at how look at how slow self driving cars are. Self driving cars are always you know, five years away. Yeah, and 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 you love. I gotta love how uh, Musk is always like. It, it, Musk is in trouble for selling. Like you can buy the car now, and you will get self driving in six months. And yep. that was complete bullshit. He it, it, like if he believed that statement, he he's he was deluding himself. P- people bought cars and paid an extra ten grand to get full self-driving when it was ready and their cars are exiting warranty, wearing out the battery packs are, are dead and need replacing the cars have so many miles on them that they, you know, they, they need new people are upgrading, getting new cars and going, 
hey, so I never got this full self-driving thing. Yeah. And that that's going to court. It's either it's in process now or it's going to court later this year. So, uh, so, uh, and and that's an that's another thing of how how does this tie into Google's advertising business? Um, we don't even know if this kind of technology is going to be um, mature, and advertisers don't like immature stuff like that, do they? Advertisers are are idiots who can be wowed by a, a convincing sales pitch and a shiny object. So uh, they they wouldn't <laughs> oh, like yeah, it the, if the they whole knew. Ad- Ad tech version one. Yeah, they yeah. just need to do another sales job like that. Yeah. You were talking about Whisper. Uh, I, I remembered what I was going to say, which was that my requirements are actually uh, pretty simple. And that is, uh, hey, this came from podcasts. I want to be able to control F a podcast, which yeah, transcripts. And all with, without any human intervention, all you need now is you need to run it through Whisper and then you get a transcript that resembles the original and if it if it's nice clear audio it whisper is very good and it knows a lot of proper nouns so it, but there's going to be a few like you know it didn't quite spell it right or it, it didn't hear you correctly but if you combine that with okay. instead of just controlling f control f a text file if you use uh other data processing which has been around since the 80s of fuzzy matching one bit of text to another bit of text and say uh, find me a bit of this this transcript that sounds like what I wrote. Uh, you don't need any human intervention there. You can just use fuzzy search on the text, and you're good to go. Okay, I hate to do this. Uh, this is a, a very classic GOB thing, but I have got to uh, get up and step away because, um, well, I could make up some argument about dealing with a cat, but really, I've got to pee a lot. I've had too much coffee this morning. Do you want and, to? Try- and I am not going to vamp. We're just going to sit here in silence, or you can put some music on. I'm going to put some music on. I was hoping you'd be willing to vamp, but I get if you don't want to. I think my favorite part about that was in the troll room when Baron Spud the Mighty says, "This is dated like hackers when they were impressed with a 14.4 modem." <laughs> Well, it, towards the end of the song, there's that bit about you've got a flat screen monitor 40 inches wide. And I think that was an exaggeration then, but we have that now. Yeah, well, they're not flat screen anymore. They're curved. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because if, if you had a flat screen 40 inches on your desk at, at display distance, that, that's, then, that was, that's well, not going to work well. Then the middle, if it's actually flat, the middle and the sides are not at the same distance. And one of them might not yeah. be the right display distance. Like, I... I I know I'm I'm very old school with my monitor setup. I have three monitors, all of which are at the the bog standard 1920 by 1080 resolution, and they're arranged in a a, a kind of a semicircle shape around me. Yeah, that that works well. I've got a single 28 inch 4K display that I bought a couple of years ago when it was uh, it, the the price hit a nice dip, and I grabbed one. And I set it up on my desk at regular display distance, and I immediately decided, like, just using it for the first couple of days, my vision was actually, my perception was distorted because I was that close to a giant flat panel that 28 inches being giant. And I told everyone, if you're going to get a really big display, if it's more than 28 inches, it has to be curved or it's just not going to work for you. I, I, I believe that. I mean, or it needs to be farther away and then, and then you don't get the benefit of all the pixels. Yeah. Uh, 
I, well, I can I, I can go buy a regular TV and sit six feet behind yeah. it. I, I I have reached the point in my old age where uh, I'm becoming farsighted. And so being up close to the screen is no longer particularly viable. And so uh, my, you know, my semicircular set of monitors, I, I have to sit about four feet away from and, and even now reuse reading glasses. And well, one of the things that I have determined, for example, is that uh, almost everything on an Android phone is, is very much made with younger eyes in mind The you know, for whatever usability they want to drop in every single app is like well we've got a hundred thousand pixels let's use every one of them and give you text that's a millimeter in height (laughs) i have complaints on this topic oh boy i I have several actually let me hear it uh so i have a uh i have a uh unihertz u-n-i-h-e-r-t-z unihertz brand titan pocket phone which is uh basically the Titan and the Titan Pocket are the best um, upgrade path from if you used to use Blackberries with keyboards. Um, this looks like a 2012 era Blackberry with a keyboard, but it's running Android, which is, you know, love it or hate it. I hate Android, but uh, if I if my only other option for any device of this type would be basically an uh, immature desktop Linux shoehorned into a phone. That where the apps don't really integrate with each other and everything comes crashing down while you're trying to have a phone call. Uh, so okay, so I just went with like Android, Android and this Trident Pocket, it's very nice. Sorry, uh, I said just like Android. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, it, Android is a little bit more mature, but it does a lot of things that I'm not happy about. So uh, this thing has a four-inch screen because it's got a keyboard, and I didn't want a giant phone. And uh, the four-inch screen is, uh, I think it's 1440 by 1440, something like that, square. Okay. And I go into the Android settings and I say, I need the text to be this many pixels. And it's like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And all the, all the regular Android widgets are sized accordingly. Like the buttons are not tiny. The text is not tiny. But as soon as I open any browser and go to a website, it's like, yep. oh, you're using 1440 by 1440. I'm going to use this font size and I don't care what your system settings say. Yep. And I, I've made, I, my, my friend looked at it and he, he changed some weird settings that I didn't really quite understand. And uh, he made, he made the text uh, in web pages a little bit bigger. This was a system set, system setting he changed, but if he made it too big, then like the UIs would just kind of fall apart and I couldn't use any web pages, but it, why, why can't web pages just, use like okay the system tells the 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 page running in the browser has a thing available to it which is 100% standard font size and all of the fonts for regular ui elements for paragraphs for usernames for dates all of those should be 100% font size and so often they're not yeah. and like i it, it not everybody has a 10 inch screen on their phone not everybody wants to squish a 10-inch screen into their pocket. <laughs> I have a little 4-inch screen with a keyboard attached. That works for me. But the programs I try to run in the browser are just such a pain in the ass. My, my wife is the kind of person. We get, we got, we get matching phones because we upgrade every five years. And this latest upgrade, I got a Galaxy something or other. And she got the one that was, uh, I kid you not, seven and a half inches and I, mm-hmm. she, because she can keep it in a purse, who cares? Just carry a bigger purse, yeah. whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm putting it in a pocket and I don't want, if I, you know, sit down, I'm going to break my leg. Try 
So I go for the smallest one they have available, which is six something. And it's still huge. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't fit it into a jeans pocket. But anyway. Um, I, I remember years ago, I, I was so entertained by just watching my wife. Uh, she chose to do this. She had a laptop, but she didn't want to carry it around. My wife was writing blog posts on an iPhone 3GS. Oh, And I don't remember the size of that, but it's like tiny by today's standards. Yeah. See, I write a lot of text, uh, but there's one thing that I absolutely have to have, which is a full-size keyboard. I'm even willing yep. to go with a phone size screen if I have to, as long as I can plug in a full size clicky mechanical keyboard into it, then I can write text. But trying to write you any non-trivial amount there's of text. There's some decent on, fold. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I, trying there's to write some any non-trivial foldable amount keyboards of text. You can, uh, okay. Right. We, got, we got some There's lag. some decent foldable keyboards that you can get that like have a little notch. You put a phone into it. Yeah. It, and And I'm sure that that, well, Foldable keyboards usually mean squishy rubber cap keys. I don't know. Like, yep. I want to. I want. I think there's a few mechanical good ones on the keyboard. Market. I have. Like, yeah. if I tried to type on this one right now, let's see if you can even hear this. Yeah, I can hear it. Uh, okay. Well, you can probably hear the chime as I screw up the command to launch Notepad. Also. <laughs> so I've got more UI shit that I in the okay. similar vein that I've got to complain about. Um, okay. Well, I, I had an answer we about have, the, the web browser size that you're not going to like and will leave you unsatisfied. Oh, go for it. Uh, well, Don't I, use I, it. I have, well, no, I have long since given up on trying to convince web developers not to write for their own page or for their own screen, their own settings, uh, their own eyeballs. Uh, web developers are, it's, it's, well, web development is decentralized, and if you give them the tools to fuck it up, if you give them the tools that say things like, uh, tell me how many pixels I have to work with, great. You know, if you give them a, a, a CSS widget that says, I want to force my text to be seven pixels high, no matter the size of a pixel, no matter how big the screen is, no matter whether it's a retina or or showing up on a uh, a panel of LEDs. If if you give them the tools to say, you know, make it work on my machine without forcing development into let's make it work on more machines or let's make something that you can see even if your eyesight is going a little bit and you're on a retina display, then web developers are going to screw it up. It, it, the yeah. blame that I put on that particular problem is browsers saying telling first of all telling the CES of the website or CES <laughs> CSS uh, they might be telling CES too but the browser providing the information to the website of saying this is how many pixels that I have to work with when that is obviously not the right measurement for the size and then the browser. And that's kind of what Windows did for 10 years. Win- Windows would get, allow you the option of lying to the program and saying that you have half as many pixels as you do. And then that way, the yeah, old programs that didn't know how to read DPI. Yeah. And, and it's because Microsoft learned a very long time ago that developers are uh, lazy in terms of they don't want to test. Nobody ever thinks about accessibility, nobody ever tests. The, the number of internal bugs I filed at at Microsoft, who has processes in place to try to force everybody to think about 
all of these things as often as possible to the point where it annoys the developers like, oh, my God, I can't even add a UI dialogue without thinking about these 700 different accessibility things. And the number of times I had to file accessibility bugs saying you have here an icon that is red and means one thing and green means the other thing. And do you realize that one in 20 males in America can't tell the difference between those colors is incredible. The developers just don't think about these things. So your tooling has to do that. So when a browser comes out and says, oh yeah, uh, this four inch by four inch screen. Yeah. I have 10,000 pixels. Then a web developer Mm -hmm. is going to be like, oh, well, 10,000 pixels. Well, it's probably exactly like the big, 18 inch screen in for, you know, or 28 inch screen in front of me that has pixels, the the size of grains of sand. So we'll use that measurement and just pretend that it all works. I told you that the answer was not going to be satisfying, but basically developers are going to screw it up. If you let them do screw it up, if you want to fix this, it needs to be done in the browser. It needs to, the browser needs to ignore CSS that says set my text three pixels high. And instead only pay attention to CSS that says, you know, set this 0.2 inches high or whatever. This suggests, though, a uh, it suggests a solution that I hadn't yet thought of, which is I have root on the phone. Um, I, I don't remember how I got root, but I, I, it wasn't very hard for this particular model. Maybe I can go in and hack it and make the entire OS operate on the assumption that I actually have 720 by 720 even though the the physical resolution is 1440 by 1440. If you can put something it, in the if display If I can make pipeline. it do that, then there's, there's nothing that I, that I'd want to run that isn't going to work for me. Go ahead. Oh, if you can put something in the display pipeline to force it to, well, to, to force it to do the things that the, the web developers never thought of because they're looking at a giant screen, uh, you know, development because oh, yeah, what developer wants to develop on a little screen? No, buddy, you want a lot of screen <laughs> real estate. You want a lot of you. You want large pixels. You, you know, I love my setup with all the three monitors because that's great for developing. But that doesn't mean that testing on this machine is going to work for something on a phone. You need to test, and developers hate doing that. It's extra work. It's why Microsoft fired all their developers before Windows 10 and made you into the tester or fired all their testers. And uh, there, there is another solution that I use sometimes if anyone's got the problem that I have. Um, if you, and, and uh, some people of our kind aren't going to like this, but I use it occasionally. Um, if you install Opera Mini, uh, it comes with a built-in uh, free access to an Opera Mini proxy server. And that proxy server, the, the point of Opera's proxy server is to strip out all the crap and give you a web page that loads as quick as possible on like a 2G connection. That was the reason the proxy was created, but they still maintain it. See, that's one but of the main reasons the secondary why I effect, run a, a, an ad blocker. The secondary effect that Opera's proxy has is that it does the, it basically looks at the page and says, okay, what is the user going to want to see on this page? And it strips out the font sizes, the colors. Like, I think it keeps some, some of the colors. But it stripped out a lot of the style and design information. And because it's trying to make the page load as fast as possible. But you end up with this, all the text is all the same font. And um, it with different colors and bold and, and headings and stuff. But if you have a, if you're trying to read a story page, like on New York Times or whatever, 
uh, not that I've been there recently, but any newspaper. And they've got the font sizes are all over the map and it's, the text is rendering on top of other text. Loaded into that Opera proxy, uh, it's nice, clean, like just a serial vertical stack of blocks of text, one after another, all 100% font size. So this uh, it amazing. doesn't work so well for interactive web applications, but it works great for story pages. I don't think interactive web applications work so well, but that that's a different rant entirely. <laughs> I do have, uh, but I'm know, just dividing the you know two categories. As, as you were describing that, uh, I was thinking of a magic button in my uh, my my older browser. I still use Pale Moon because it's the one that I have JavaScript disabled in. I have it's very locked down. It it strips things. And your description reminded me of a magic button that I use in that browser still. It's kind of uh, apparently they don't want you to use it very often because it's buried three menus deep, deep in the view menu. But it's called use basic page style. And effectively, yeah. it, it nukes all the CSS and just gives you the text. It's incredible how much more readable a lot of sites are when you do that. Yep. And some browsers have this, uh, like, uh, Bromite is the browser that I use on Android. And uh, it's a fork of Chromium. It has all the Google crap removed from it. Uh, and I, I think a lot of Chromium-based browsers have this feature where, like, it will detect, like, it'll basically say, hey, we decide that um, the browser has decided that this page is laid out really messy, and we think you might want a more readable version of this page. And would you like to go to that view? Yes, And I, I never understood, why isn't that, like, a button that's always in the toolbar? Why, yeah. do, why does it have to decide for me whether it's a bad design or not? Why can't I just say, this page is a bad design, give me the readable view no matter what? It could be that that by default, this page is a bad design because it was designed by web designers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had a, another uh, a problem with font sizes. Um, my uh, years ago, go go back to like the beginning of television when like things were black and white and then they were color. It, it was pretty much standard you'd have like a 10 inch screen or a 12 inch screen and the entire family would be sitting there watching a 12 inch crt and they'd be entertained by that and that that was television and then fast forward a few years go to like the 1980s and 1990s and it is perfectly reasonable perfectly common to have like a 20 inch a 30 inch display and so you would think that if you look in my living room right now and you see that on one side of the living room i have a 30 inch 16 by 9 panel and on the other side of the living room, I've got uh, a love seat with you can, two people can sit on it. And these two, the, the two sides of the room are about uh, 12 feet apart, I think. Only 30 you, inches. You would think that that would be reasonable, except for the UIs that we have to run on the TV to, to access Roku that have all, all the services in Roku that Netflix and Hulu and uh, NBC and uh, all the other channels. I, I don't I actually don't use it very much. My wife does. But um so, so to, they're running inside of this Roku operating system, and I think that the the Roku channel design is such that you're you're allowed to do some styling, but there's a bunch of like defaults that you're supposed to follow these defaults. And the they? default font size for program descriptions, the number of characters per line, and uh, like the 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 fraction, how many lines per. Uh, height of the display, like if if they just wrote lines of text, how many lines per uh, from the top to the bottom of the screen would be? That number is too small for a thirty-inch display on the other side of the room, and you can't adjust it. Well, of course it is because you 
you should be a better consumer and go out and buy a 60 inch. I, I don't want my living room to be, I don't want the purpose of my living room to be the television. I'm perfectly happy with a 30 inch display, except that I can't read the fucking program descriptions. I mean, you could get up and walk across the room. How hard is that? That's, that's actually what we have to do. So I, I, <laughs> we're come full, we've come full circle back to the 60s yeah, where you I, have to get up and to, to say, change I, the channel. I, you, I'm, I'm you old have to get up that, and walk across the room and read the display. I'm, I'm old enough that my first job was as the remote control for my dad's television. <laughs> we did the the remote the remote to change the channel or change the volume on a television back then was you tell the kid to get up and go fiddle with the knobs that was we we did not have a remote on the first tv that i ever had in my household uh so you want to circle back to the uh it, 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 I, I have an offshoot of that ai discussion or, or sure. not a, the date it's actually it's a data processing discussion, not I, an AI discussion. I have a couple more ChatGPT stories in my lineup as well uh, regarding the okay. the new trend of cheating using ChatGPT. But uh, w- would okay. you like to go first? We can get to that. Yeah. So um, about uh, January thirtieth. So, okay. So this was Monday. Somebody posted. I, I read the Soylent News blog. S O Y L E N T. Soylent News. Yes. Um, it has is, nothing to do with Soylent the Drink. Um, it, it's kind of a takeoff on the the, the uh, film. Uh, isn't that Soylent what, Green? What Slashdot wanted to be before it evolved into something awful? It, Soylent News is a bunch of people that left Slashdot because they were it, the editorial quality at Slashdot had been like it at it, at at its low point. A bunch of people left and created Soylent News. Yeah, and they're they're using the same software, but they fixed it so it can actually speak Unicode. Um, to this day, editors will publish stories on Slashdot that have uh, UTF-8 encoded text pasted into a like eight-bit text box, and then it will regurgitate as Mojibaki. And it, what's I, that I word? They can't even uh, Mojibaki. M O J I. It's it's a misuse of the term, but it's basically when text gets uh, it, text gets rendered through the wrong encoding and then you end up with a bunch of characters that mean nothing. I like it. Go on. I'm sorry. Uh, so editors will publish on Slashdot and they'll like the rule is you cannot post, you cannot put UTF eight text into their eight bit text box when you're doing a post on Slashdot but and editors will keep doing this. And then every time the, the, the story UTF-8. comes to like a, and then the story comes to like a quotation mark and you get like uh, three characters instead of a quotation mark. It's, it's really lovely. I, I think it's really funny that Slashdot can't even program the front end to tell the editor, no, you can't paste that text. Please don't hit submit. Like it, it, they, they can't even check for it and they keep doing it. And it's, it's hilarious. You know, I think- but anyway, over on Soylent News, uh, Monday, they post, somebody posted a story on Soylent News. You can look up Linux Package Zeitgeist. That's the title of the story. And they're quoting a, a Dev1 forum post. And the, the guy on, on the Dev1 forum is uh, he's, he's really excited. I'll, I'll quote from the text. There's a software package called Zeitgeist that's been finding its way into nearly every Linux and BSD package repository. It's also in Dev1. And uh, be sure to read the note at the bottom of this post. Uh, I'll skip that because I'm not reading that. It reads your emails. It mod- it monitors the websites you visit. It listens to your private conversations. It logs all of the files on your computer. I think it means it logs all the files you open on your computer. And then it shares that information freely over the DBus to any application that wishes to subscribe to that. 
Oh. And then it goes on. And That's- this story really surprised me because, I mean, I'm the kind of person that is aware of what's going on in the free software world. When Zeitgeist was first created, I knew about it right away. I think it was... Uh, created for the GNOME desktop, whatever version GNOME was on at that time. I think that's what, uh, it's written in Vala, so it probably is GNOME. But I saw that, and it was like, okay, this is cool. It's not a threat. I I, I didn't see it as a threat because uh, there's a huge difference between this, Zeitgeist, and all the crap that Google and Apple get away with, where Google and Apple will say, we're going to monitor everything you do, and we'll keep it on our server, and then we'll use it to better serve you, but we're really just selling it to advertisers. But what Zeitgeist is doing is it's doing that all that that data gathering, that surveillance on your activity for the purpose of serving you, uh, assuming you don't have any malware installed. Now, you might think that this is like a privacy issue uh, because like, well, just put it on the well, D-Bus event. I, um, I, I might. And, and let me let me possibly explain why this is a concern and the Google and Apple stuff is, is because if you don't care about privacy and you're not bothered by all of this data being shared amongst everything on your operating system, there's a very good chance you're already running Google or Apple. If you're running something that isn't Google or Apple, one of the primary reasons why you might be doing that is because you don't, because you are concerned about this sort of behavior. I guess I'm saying the kind of people who complain about Zeitgeist are also the kind of people who stopped using Google and Apple a long time ago for the same reason. Yeah, right. And that there might be concerns about like you know what else is running on your desktop that can read Dbus and might transmit it over the internet or or something. But um, it, it, a few thoughts that I have about this are uh, first of all. If a program can read Dbus, that same program can also read everything that's in your local file system. And uh, that that's always been a problem with the Linux desktop, where on Android, if you open up a program, the first thing it has access to is pretty much nothing. And if it wants to access your local documents folder, it's got to ask you for that. The UI is going to say, is this going to be allowed? Yeah. And if you say no... Presumably, it can't. And, and on, uh, on Android Linux, has always been built with this this uh, the compartmentalization of processes. Yeah, and even Linux, owned if, by the if, same user. If you didn't launch it, launch it with ch root, then it has access to your password file and everything else, all your configs, all yeah. your scripts, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the default on Windows. It's the default on Linux desktop. Everything under your home folder is free game for any program that you start up. So this Zeitgeist thing is just taking all that information and it's serializing it, it's turning it into events that you can search. And uh, of course, the purpose of it is so that you can run a local program and say, what did I do yesterday? And fill out your timesheet and, you know, things like that. And it sounds oh. like a good idea. And I believe that giving, in almost Giving people all access min- to their own hard drives, are you sure that's safe? <laughs> so I... I believe in in all the big Linux distributions. Like this is available, but it's like if it's installed, it's it's not turned on until you go into settings and say, "Hey, I I want to log all of my activities so that I can read my log later." Uh, I think it's turned off by default. Of course, you can build an OS that says, "Oh, I'm going to use Zeitgeist, and I'm I'll turn that on by default for the user, and and hopefully the user understands that." Yes, because it's but convenient. I think it's funny that this blog person, uh, whoever. Uh, was creating this blog post on Soylent. I think it's funny that they were getting so upset and scared about it when 
all this is doing is taking it's taking data that is already available. Uh, like Zeitgeist doesn't have any special permissions. Zeitgeist is taking data that Zeitgeist can access, and it's regurgitating it in a way that makes it easier to turn that into a timeline. And some people, like there was a fad about timelines uh, about 10 years ago. Some of the comments in the, um, in the blog post are talking about that. Um, and actually, that, that brings us to whatever happened to that idea of uh, there, there was a gamification fad a while ago, and there was a timeline fad. There was this idea of like t- uh, recording events for everything that you do. And then instead of going to the start menu and picking a program, you could go to the start menu and say, what, what are my recent activities? I want to resume one of those activities. Um, I guess um, that never really happened. And we're still stuck with the 1990s start menu list of open processes, clock, that that's the UI metaphor that we have. Well, I know the the, the Windows 10 start menu has a, a list of – who am I kidding? Windows XP had a, a list of recent documents you had open in the the fancy file open dialog. Actually, in XP, I think it was uh, Office that installed this. But in, in Vista and later, it had a, a pane on the left that everybody hated because it didn't look like the original file open dialogue that said, uh, you know, here's a list of things that we used before. Uh, Windows 10 start man- menu has that. Uh, my Android phone I- infuriates me sometimes because on the front page, the list of icons at the bottom kept changing. What I thought was it was like randomly changing which apps are displayed on the front so I can never be sure what's there. And then I realized it was actually populating it from a list of most recent ones I've closed. I mean, that still <laughs> exists. I, yeah. It, it's sometimes presented well and sometimes not presented well. Uh, you know, as, as for timelines, uh, they is some of them might've been killed with uh, things like when, when, for example, Twitter discovered that uh, strict chronological order was not as monetizable or manipulable as, uh, it, using an algo to give somebody featured tweets, uh, you know, somewhere and along the line. And when Facebook and Twitter did that, I never wanted to use those sites again. It, well, but you're in the minority. A lot of people were like, oh, these are much more relevant to my interests, not realizing that their <laughs> interests were being shaped. Yep. It, it's mind control. I won't call it anything else. When, a lot of people want their when minds the vendor, to be controlled. A lot of people are too busy to control their own minds. When the vendor tells you what is relevant. Yeah. When the vendor tells you that these are the relevant stories and thoughts of the day, instead of letting you browse, like you don't even have the option to browse, what have all of my friends been talking about in order in the last 24 hours? That's mind control. That is controlling what you're allowed to think about. It, it um, is. And the only, way to, I think the only that, way to subvert that control is to leave the site. I think the mistake you're making is re- not realizing that that's what a lot of people want. Thinking is hard. <laughs> thinking is painful. Thinking makes your brain sweat. People don't want that. They want to be told what to think. They want to be told what they know. They want to be told what's interesting to them so that they don't have to investigate or or learn what's interesting on their own. It's what I mean, it, I, I don't know which came first, but this is effectively that the trend started back in the 1950s when we had a a 12 inch CRT that the whole family gathered around and stared at. They didn't decide what shows they wanted to watch. They were, they would all gather around the thing and then it would pipe in the shows that the networks decided were interesting. And 
this is a lesson, by the way, that Netflix learned pretty early on when they started with the premise of, well, people want to decide what they want to watch and people didn't. And there became a phenomenon called Netflix paralysis where people are like, well, I want to watch something, but I have so many choices. I can't decide. I guess I won't watch anything at all. And Netflix realized that in addition to making everything available, they also had to create a recommendation engine that says, uh, you know, here you have everything in the world available to you, but you really want to watch this. And the number of people who click on the category in it, every streaming site, every, every place that gives you a huge selection always has this. Now, if they're successful, the number of people who ignore all of the dozens and dozens of categories and go, okay, what do you tell me to do next? is staggering me. Uh, you know, when I go to netflix.com or, or Amazon prime, uh, I actually use CSS to hide the recommended categories because I hate what they recommend, especially when Amazon comes out and is like this category, things you might like black voices, something like that. I'm like, no, you're (laughs) woke. You piece of crap company. I just want to watch. How about good movies? Can you show me that? But no. I I remember that when Netflix was getting really excited about doing their contest to try to figure out how to optimize the recommendation engine, at that time, you could go into Netflix and open a film with Charlton Heston in it and then say, this movie has Charlton Heston in it. I'd say to myself, I would like to see what else in the catalog has Charlton Heston in it. And Netflix steadfastly refused to answer that question. They've gone the other direction. The the they they took away you know they took away user reviews and then eventually they took away the thumbs up and thumbs down button now on Netflix you can't even say i like you know for for a while you used to be able to say you know two stars uh i hated almost everything about it but this part was good and then put the review data in there they realized somewhere along the line that people were actually giving their honest reviews and they couldn't have that so they took the reviews away <laughs> then they took five uh, stars away because a, a selection from one through five is far too nuanced. And they gave you just a thumbs up or thumbs down. I liked this or I didn't like this as if everybody's opinion can be distilled into a Boolean. And then eventually they took that away and just went, nope, our recommendation engine is only going to pay attention to what you've been watching. And so I go into Netflix and if I happen to accidentally click on uh, a, a horror movie and walk away, then I'm getting, you know, Friday the 13th in my recommendation feed forever because I watched one once like, no, I actually hate that genre. Get rid of it. But there's no control. It's really fun when you let a, when you let a house guest use it and they, they screw up all of your data. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or, or when, uh, you, you loan somebody your password so that they can use it too. And then the, all the data gets really confused, which, uh, so thinking about all this mind control with, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was going to transition to an, into another story about Netflix, who is now cracking down on password sharing. But, uh, you know, that's not a very interesting one, and I'll just save it for Angry Tech News. So do your thing. <laughs> uh, so thinking about this mind control with the the friend feeds and stuff, and uh, that's obviously a problem. What happens when whatever chat GPT is now, whatever that becomes it, in terms of answer engines for the Internet to replace search engines? Uh, what happens when, and you know this is going to happen, the, the Bing, the, the Google, uh, whatever, 
they start synthesizing answers instead. Like the way that it works right now is, or the one of the ways that it works with search engines when you don't have an info box, you go in and type in a topic into the search engine, and it uh, Google is going to collect a bunch of story pages and text pages on the internet and say these are the results and it's going to put the ones that google likes the best on top but eventually if you scroll past those you're going to see a lot more if if it's if it's a topic that people talk about yeah on, on but then all two. of those stories all of those answers are in the form of here is a citation to something that some other person wrote which is not google and you can go and read that page and then you have to evaluate that page what is the what is the provenance of this information what is how what is the quality of the argument do i trust the person that's writing it do i know the person that's writing it what are what other results do i have is there somebody in here that i already do trust what happens when you replace that with just a synthesized essay and written by google right now on the spot for you that is and that essay is going to have the mind control built in again i think that you give people far too much credit for assuming that they want to do make the effort of determining whether or not something can be trusted a lot of people out there just oh i trust google because i was told i should trust google and it hasn't steered me wrong that i know of and therefore google just decide how i should think they want the mind control because it's easier that ultimately i think is the I mean, that, that's what's leading to the downfall of society. If I wanted to get really philosophical. Yeah. So, uh, I've, um, you, you are aware that, uh, chat GPT is now being used in schools by students, enterprising students to do things that the teachers who are still using an educational system from before the computing era, uh, don't seem to like, which is teachers are saying, you know, please write an essay on this topic and, uh, you know, discuss this or whatever, which was a great way to test comprehension and knowledge up until when an AI would be able to do that for you. Nowadays, you know, teacher says, uh, discuss the impact of podcasting in the 22nd century and the AI will do that. And, uh, I said 22nd century, but you know, the, the point still stands because even though there hasn't been any impact, the AI is going to make something up and the teacher will accept it. Except a lot of teachers are getting really annoyed because they consider this cheating. So, um, the, are, are, are we still here? Yeah. Have I, okay. I, I was coughing a little bit. Go oh. ahead. Why, why would you do that? Stop it. Heal, heal. Anyway, uh, so OpenAI has released an AI detection tool called the AI Text Classifier, which uh, is used to detect whether or not a block of text came out of their tool. Uh, this particular one effectively uses uh, the same data set to decide whether or not a particular bit of text, you know, the, the text is all made up on the fly, but it tries to come up with a heuristic that says whether a level of confidence, whether or not this text was created by, well, the problem with this classifier and there's others that like it is that it requires just as much information as went into the AI. So the other one that I came across was something from Stanford. And I, I pointed you at this before the show thinking, Hey, can you understand this? But Stanford has released a paper 
uh, that discusses cheating with chat GPT and have come up with a tool called detect GPT. So I'm just going to read a sentence from the abstract of this and ask if you can understand it better than I did. The sentence says, Mm -hmm. we observe that text sampled from an LLM, which is a logical language model, tends to occupy negative curvature regions of the model's log probability function. Leveraging this observation, we then define a new curvature-based criterion for judging if a passage is generated from a given LLM. Now, I understand a lot of statistics, a lot more than the average person, but negative curvature regions of the model's log probability function went over my head. I don't understand the math at their level that they're trying to speak about it, but at a at a more abstract level, the way that I would comment on this is think about uh, the way you analyze data, uh, really basic data analysis. You you can do things like um, you can take a series of data uh, of value over time or power over time or whatever, something across time, and you can plot that on a graph and then you can plot a derivative of that and then you can plot a second-order derivative of the first derivative. And if you look at all these derived things, the, the metadata that's generated from the original data series, you can you can discover patterns that weren't immediately obvious in the original data. And uh, I hope that makes sense uh, just that far. I think what they're doing here, with which is in, in an area of math that I have virtually no understanding of, uh, they are using existing algorithms and existing operations that you can perform on data to derive extra metadata that that you know derivative stuff that comes from the first data the first primary data and they 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 found a set of operations that you can do to the human text and to the chat gpt text where if you look at the derived uh, metadata that, that they look completely either completely different or just different enough that you can say, Oh, you know, this has the fingerprint of a human. This has the fingerprint of a uh, chat GPT. It's interesting that they were able to do that at all because uh, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a fun arms race to watch. If I understand this point of chat GPT correctly, that the, what J- chat GPT actually does is it's it starts with uh, the answer the the first version of the answer is just block of random noise, and then it kind of chips away at it like a sculptor and changes the random noise so that it's slightly closer to something that is a reasonable answer for the human's query, and it iterates that thousands of times, and then you end up with this this you know from from random chaos you end up with a an essay that looks like something that a human would write to answer that question. And yet this other research is saying, well, we detected a pattern that we can, we can define these rules that say that this looks more like a human thing. And this looks more like chat GPT wrote it, even though what chat GPT is doing is it's chipping away at the random noise until it doesn't look like garbage anymore. It, it looks like something or, like or, a human wrote it, but, or, or at least looks like garbage that a human might've written. And I think what they might be chasing after is that limit that like chat GPT can go and dream for like two hours and then come back to you with an essay, but it doesn't have that time. So it, it's like doing a chess move. It, 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 uh, 
it thinks as far ahead as time allows and then says, okay, this is the output that I have right now. I'm going to give that to the human who, who made the question. And I think that that's and probably one of the knobs that you, it, that you have in order to tune and say, yeah. well, this is probably good enough. You know, it, it, so it, it doesn't the pattern to be- that detects GPT is finding is the difference between the good enough, I only had this much time to make it look like a human versus an actual human wrote it. There is going to be a mathematical difference between those two things. And also, I think that the, the, the threshold for AI is it, it doesn't have to be intelligent in order to wow people. It just has to be at least as bright as the average Internet user, which fortunately isn't that great. Yes. So. The- and, and that's that's another the criteria for self-driving cars. Like if you come up with a self-driving car system that is not perfect, but is measurably with with a mountain of data is measurably less dangerous than a human driver, then it's kind of hard to argue that the self-driving car is something you can't use. Well, fortunately, we don't have that were, yet. But... There will be people who argue that. <laughs> so, um, but I, I think we're going to get there in the next two hundred years. How soon? I have no idea. No, it, it's five years away. I'm quite certain of it. Oh yeah, it's it's always five years away. Just remember, just keep repeating that, especially when you're in the meeting where the angel investors are about to give you money. Is the tech but the technology the, the, to make everything work is only five years away. You can imagine a self-driving car that is not intelligent, is not self-aware, and does less damage than a human driver. And you you could say that that is a possibility in the future. Because most human drivers are not intelligent and not self-aware. Yeah. But the test isn't yeah. intelligence. The test is does yes. less damage. Oh, yes. I understand. And for, these te- I- for the tech synthesis, it's not is this intelligence. It's that we don't care if it's intelligent. The test is can this pass for human behavior? Which is is frankly a really important point to keep in mind whenever you read critiques of of either AI or self-driving cars. You know, for me, when I read the output of ChatGPT, I'm like, this is 75% gibberish and uh, the rest of it could have been said a lot more concisely, which, by the way, is my main reason why I don't think that ChatGPT in its current form will ever replace search, not until it gets a lot more concise. (laughs) Yeah. When I type in, I would rather have a list of links, you know, without ads, of course then have to read an essay full of garbage and gibberish. But, but I understand where it's going because it, it, the conciseness is in fact a problem that they can work on and make it not take so many, you know, the current iteration, they actually wanted it to make essays and I sure as hell don't want that as the result of my search engine, but. Yeah. Everybody's freaking about, about freaking out about what chap GPT could do in the future, but it, but the, what's actually there is a demo whose purpose is to write essays. Its purpose is not to be an internet homepage. Yeah. But, but people are imagining like, well, what, what could this iterate into? And, and the important thing to remember there is that people's imaginations uh, are far, far more vibrant than what will actually come out from technology in the next five years. Do you think that um, people, do you think that the world has, like, you know, your average Joe has recognized the fact that um, flying cars are actually a bad idea? Uh, <laughs> or is it still like, a, we, that would be nice to have in the future? 
I, I have been so wrong on so many levels about what the average Joe wants. The, the hemming distance between what I understand about people and what people actually want has increased exponentially as social media grips the world. So I'm not the right person Imagine to ask a world, about that. Imagine a world full of flying cars that somehow manage to stay in the sky, but are not quiet. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, you entered fantasy when you say uh, manage to stay in the sky, because all you have to do is drive down a freeway just about anywhere in a city that has traffic. And every mile or so, you're going to see a car pulled off to the side of the road. That is a machine that stopped functioning. And cars yep. have the beneficial property that when they stop functioning, they don't gain energy by uh, losing altitude. They just slow down and go to the side of the road. Um, a, a flying car, when exactly the same mechanical problems have, and the, the more complicated a machine, the more mechanical problems, a flying car, when something fails, becomes a missile. And that alone makes them not an acceptable risk for decentralization. People, you know, the, the statistic is always tossed around of how air travel is so incredibly safe. Well, the reason is that the FAA are not because they spend like 80% of the budget on safety. <laughs> yeah. The industry spends 80% of the budget on safety. There is a tiny, tiny fraction of people who are allowed to do it. The total number of planes in the sky is such a minuscule fraction of the number of cars out there. If you started to treat air travel like car travel and, and put the traffic jams into the sky, you know, everybody would be forced to live underground because houses would be demolished left and right by car crashes falling on them. I just came up with a new idea for a sci-fi show. <laughs> Okay, I, have we beat OpenAI to death? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't I, have any more to say okay. about it. I had, I had one more. I, I need to is... do a bunch of research so I can do a coherent presentation in, in front of a group next month. Okay. I had one more, one more o o AI story, which is, uh, um, this isn't actually OpenAI so much, or th well, this isn't uh, ChatGPT so much, but it does involve Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI. It has to do with the uh, GitHub Copilot the functionality. Are you familiar with this one? Yep. Yeah. As soon as Copilot came out, like a few people made comments on it and I warned my department. I said, we can't use this. We might get sued. Well, that's exactly what's happening. There is now a class action lawsuit against Microsoft GitHub and OpenAI, saying that uh, the model was trained. Well, the, the model, you know, OpenAI and Microsoft are, are quite forthcoming that the model was trained on the code that's made publicly available in GitHub. And yeah. now uh, a person who was introduced as programmer and lawyer, Matthew Buttrick, way to, way to scrape the bottom of the barrel for quality of human being, but uh, uh, a programmer and a lawyer has filed suit. He filed suit in November against Microsoft GitHub and OpenAI, claiming that the model violated the copyrights of every single person who published their code publicly on GitHub. I would narrow that a little bit and say that, well, first of all, the model would have to have actually used the code somewhere, but it's only a violation if the license for the quoted code 
doesn't is not compatible with the license of whatever was built using the quoted code. Well, the the code, and is... then you have to determine whether it's fair use or not. It, 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 you have to fair use things are always have to be on a case by case basis, and and it's it's going to be a big hairy mess. Um, but to blanket say that just because I published code on GitHub and they took my code, that's a copyright violation. Well, it, that you, you didn't ask me what I thought about people taking my code. Well, I, I, here's here's the interesting twist that it wasn't called out in uh, the story was from The Verge and they they're not really great at going deep. But the interesting twist to this is that all of the standard tests for copyright infringement always rely on a verbatim copying of some portion of the infringed work that that the, the, the allegedly infringed work. It all relies on a verbatim copying and nothing that the everything that comes out of Copilot, which, again, is AI generated code uh, for people who don't know. And I thought this was an amazing, cool thing. um, The the example being shown for GitHub Copilot is you type in your IDE, uh, say the words funk, get average runtime in seconds. And Mm -hmm. Copilot will automatically fill out about a dozen line long function that takes an array of floats, it calculates their mean and outputs that as the return value and, and names it things like runtime and seconds and stuff like that, which is a really cool idea for helping you out with this. Um, I, I, you know, we can get into a discussion as to whether or not that's nearly as useful as people think it is, but that code is generated on the fly at that moment. There is no verbatim copying of anything. And this is true of anybody who tries to use a copyright law to wield against an AI data set is nothing is copied. Somebody did manage to early on. Somebody managed to produce a counter example of that. Oh, did um, they? That showed verbatim verbatim copying. Um, You remember, uh, are you familiar with John Carmack's fast inverse square root hack? I am vaguely familiar with it. I, I remember it was extremely clever and I really liked it. And then I promptly forgot the details. So it, it uses features of the C language. And I think features of the x86 um, machine language. I'm not, I, I, I forget exactly what, but it's, it's a really cool hack. Like the, it, it should not be possible to make the algorithm this fast. And he pulled it off and, and he put it into doom, I think. Yes. And that, code ended up having the GPL license attached to it. I believe GPL is the, the license. And then it, it ended up getting, that code was ingested by uh, Copilot. And somebody uh, managed to produce this contrived example, but completely believable that some hacker might do something like this, uh, you know, not really caring about copyright, not knowing that they're violating copyright. You can go into your IDE and like write out... Um, you uh, BSD license, and then like the BSD license appears in the file, and then after that, you just prompt it with the right keyword that it thinks about fast inverse square root, and it'll write out John Carmack's fast inverse square root in C verbatim exactly what John Carmack wrote, and then you've got the BSD license at the top of the file, the fast inverse square root function, and like just save that, and if you publish that file, that's a, a copyright violation. Well, whether or not it's a copyright violation is certainly the the kind of thing that a lawyer would argue. Um, uh, First of all, uh, 
Way to completely destroy my whole argument with one example. I, I wasn't expecting that. Thanks a lot, jerk. But, uh, <laughs> well, you, uh, um, I, I, you know, if, that, if, that I was... were, if I were a copyright defense lawyer and that was brought up, I would probably go in and say, well, it, you know, this might be a, a million monkey fluke that generated it. And do you have any other examples or something like that? And, you know, see, throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. Because the the fundamental thing is, you know, programming and in particular, very, very specific algorithms like this might be an exception. And it's one of the reasons why I think code should not be copyrightable because of the million monkeys thing. But because it doesn't even take that many monkeys, there's only so many ways you can write an algorithm that gets the mean of an array. But uh, the argument in in the case of every one of these AI lawyers, and I guarantee you that Microsoft's lawyers are going to argue this if this case goes to court, is the AI is generating the code on the fly and therefore it cannot possibly be copying anything verbatim. And if it does happen to spit out something that looks verbatim like your thing, then it's a coincidence. And, and I don't that know ties that, into a lot of the argument about copyright. That, that, that dovetails with uh, people talking about how do we handle these image generating algorithms um, because it, it, people, for since the beginning of time, when people are generating visual art by hand with you know with human thought, they will take all of their life experience, everything they've seen, all the art that they've seen other people do, and then they will produce a new image that you know in the the standard way that people are used to. Uh, they're what they produce in that new visual art that that human has produced. It, it's it's not like a direct copy of anything else that they've seen. It's their own expression from their own mind informed by all the culture that they've been exposed to thus far. Yes. And if you look at these image generators, they tend to be doing that. They're, they're like, if you say, give me in the style of Andy Warhol to do a, 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 um, a, a portrait of my cat, you're going to get a portrait of your cat looking like Andy Warhol that did it, but it's not an Andy Warhol painting. It's your painting. All right. I mean, it, if yeah. it was done by the, the AI, um, you could argue back and forth about whether that's a copyright violation, but most, um, most the average Joes are going to look at that and say that that's the process of well, art that people it, are going to, are going to say it shouldn't react. be yeah. whether it is or not. You're reacting to the, all the things that you or the, all the things that the AI has been exposed to. And it made a new novel thing and copilot might be doing that a lot to some extent, but Copilot will also, as we have demonstrated, I think um, I think SFLC or somebody has been collecting. They put out a general call. Um, if you're using Copilot, let us know if you see this kind of copyright, like you know, verbatim copying happening. They um, well, programmers so it, aren't. It has to, happened. Programmers aren't going uh, to check that because it. it, it First of all, if you find code that does what you activists, want, you swipe it. activists who pretend to be programmers oh, are yes, going to there do will that, be that and they're going to report it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the situation you described, the, the remixing of previous influences and creating something that's you that is informed by all of these other things that came before is, is literally how human culture is generated. It's how humans work. And it's the reason yeah. why uh, it, the the idea of cultural appropriation being somehow bad or or any interpretation of copyright that doesn't uh, force a verbatim copy are uh, automatically need to fail 
simply because you are running up against you're, you're I mean, it's continuing the thing that that uh, RMS warned us about 30 years ago, which is the the public domain and all of human culture being parceled out into a, a lockdown set of of corporate fiefdoms where everything that you see, experience or do in your entire life is owned by somebody through intellectual property. And you have to pay people money just for the purpose of experiencing things through your senses. And, you know, nothing is free or public anymore. It, th- that kind copyright, of world is where copyright, copyright and trademark. Car- copyright and trademark law is like a it's a hack that has been carved out of culture for the purpose of allowing people to make a career out of creative thought. Well, that was how it started. It's not what it does now. Yeah. And we have to figure out where to draw the line. Yeah. I've got a funny cult- cultural appropriation story. Oh, good. Um, you may remember, I, I don't remember the, the names or, or the locations involved exactly, but about three or four years ago, a girl decided to, a girl in, in America, uh, in USA, decided she was going to, she liked uh, Asian culture and she took, um, there's a particular style of um, fancy formal um formal suit dress type of thing that um, that Chinese women will wear. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but if, if you see the style, uh, you, you recognize it. A, like, a this formal is a common thing. suit dress thing is, is what it's called yeah. now. Okay. So th- this American girl decided who's white decided I'm going to wear that for my prom. I'm going to ha- have a, I'm, I'm going to have my, my outfit is going to be th- one of those. And, it became a cultural appropriation thing. She got called out on the internet, like, "Oh, this is so bad! You're, you're that's cultural appropriation. You're, you're stealing Asian culture, and you're not Asian." And, um, and Serpent said, "A, who you may have heard of, he used to, he's a South African who lived in China for many years and um, took off before they killed him. Um, he, he lives in America now." He was in China at the time, and he asked a bunch of people on the street, showed them a picture of this girl wearing the, the suit dress, and uh, said that, she, that this girl wore it to her high school prom. What do you think of this? And all the Chinese that he asked on the street, they're like, oh, that's cool. That, that's awesome. They're, she's propagating our culture. Of course. Regular people <laughs> and And why wouldn't that? they think that? Yeah. Yeah. Because regular people understand how humans work, which is – the the cool things that people come up with, you want to swipe and make your own and and do cool stuff with. And the only reason why we're being taught that that's bad is because large corporations want their cut of the culture. They want they they want to be able to tax every time that you sing happy birthday or or uh, you know put uh, two circles on top of a hat and call it a uh, anyway. So uh, the chat room is asking, who am I talking about? Serpent Z-A, S-E-R-P-E-N-T-Z-A. The, the Z-A is because he's from South Africa. Uh, okay. I, I didn't know who we it, were he talking was, about. He but... was the vlogger that, he was the vlogger that oh, asked a, a bunch of Chinese, Chinese people. Oh, of on the course street. I know what, who that is because I read all the vlogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Winston Sturtstill is his uh, given name. Okay, last question uh, that I have. Do you know what this isobot is in the chat room? Today is the first time I've seen it, and people have been talking about it. They give it commands, and then it's creating MP3s of what 
I can only assume is embarrassing things that I'm saying because uh, most of what I say is embarrassing and when taken out of context. Uh, I, I actually, sometimes I leave the no agenda chat room and then I come back a few days later because people will, uh, they, they love to do those karma bombs at the end of the no agenda show. Oh, um, yeah. I finally the muted chat the no agenda useless. chat room. So, so if anybody ever tags me in the no agenda chat room, I'm not going to notice cause I've just completely muted it. And as far as what bots and processes are running there, I, I have no idea. Okay. Well. Uh, so this is something it, that Cotton Gin did, apparently, because it's uh, on it CottonGin.xyz. Like well, the general rule with bots in the No Agenda chat room is uh, if the bot becomes too spammy or disruptive of the channel, then it gets a kick and you can stay in, in the other chat rooms where they like that sort of thing. And if the bot is uh, is not too super annoying, uh, then uh, or if the if the only person the bot annoys is Darren, then then we're probably fine to keep it in. Anyway, uh, we're coming up on, on two hours of recording, and Sir Gene has not made it. Uh, so any, any final thoughts? How do you usually end these things? Uh, I, I don't know. I, we were talking about me uh, not having a proper mic. I, I was thinking that uh, if I get a proper mic, then I'm going to have to start doing podcasts. and uh, I, I don't know if I have the energy for that sort of thing. So well, how if- do you end a show? I, I don't know. If if you started doing podcasts, you should probably keep the the gaming headset that you're using right now, or people will not recognize your voice. <laughs> well, I'm also I've been sick like the, for the last week, so uh, this yeah. this isn't quite my regular voice. Well, uh, the way I'm well, we could end just it, end it by just we could just stop talking and turn off the recording. I could do that. Uh, that that wouldn't be professional of me. So instead. I'm going to say from America's left coast where uh, I will soon be out of a job as ChatGPT learns to podcast. I'm Ryan Pemrose. And from New York City, I'm Progo. Yeah, that theme song is still too damn long.